Hi, before we get into this episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast, I just want to make a quick comment about the sound quality. So, so far during lockdown, we've been pretty lucky with the sound quality we've been able to achieve recording over the internet. In this episode, the sound quality does tail off a little bit towards the end of the podcast. So I hope that doesn't get in the way of your listening enjoyment. It's a brilliant conversation and I yeah, still hope you enjoy it. So with all that said, let's get into the episode. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. Today, we're going to take a break from our exploration of optimism to take a look at design thinking. Now, we're all familiar with the term, but I thought it'd be interesting to hear some perspective about its utilization, adoption and impact, especially in light of the need to adapt, innovate and be creative in response to COVID-19 pandemic at the moment. So this is something companies uh, everywhere are having to think about. And design thinking offers a different type of logic to normally found in companies. So are companies using design thinking? If so, how? Is it a genuine strategic tool? Does it have other applications? So I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Pietro Michelli, who is the Professor of Business Performance and Innovation at Warwick Business School and who's been researching design thinking for many years. Welcome to the show, Pietro. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lee, for having me. So I guess we should sort of set the scene. Could you just tell us a bit about your, your, your background and, and, and the work that you do at Warwick Business School and your research? Yeah, so uh, in brief, so my background, uh, I actually graduated in uh, engineering and then I did a PhD in management. Um, I started doing the type of things that you would imagine somebody interested in production methods. So try to understand how a factory would work. But uh, uh, back in 2006, I then got into a project that was about how production is part of a wider process of product development and how this product development process was structured differently depending on different companies. And we looked in particular at furniture firms. And that's where I encountered what then has become known as design thinker, at least part of that. So um, very early. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite very a while early, Because it, um, it kind of became popular around 2008, didn't it, with uh, Tim Brown's article in... Uh, HBR, right? So this, that's this right, is that's right. right at, the, at, the, uh, at the cusp of it. Yes. Unfortunately, I, I was not that good at branding it the way they did. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, hey. Uh, but no, so that's what I did. And then I got into more and more projects um, in the UK, continental Europe, North America, trying to understand what different companies do. And I tried to get in depth. So I, I tried to get into these companies and understand what they do. Uh, then I did also some consultancy work for firms and, and really trying to embed some of these principles and practices. And um, yes, and so I've, I've worked on, on various projects in this area. Uh, other than this, uh, of course, I work at the University of Warwick, as you said, and uh, I'm the course director for an MBA program. I work on various other things. But, uh, but I would say that design, design thinking and innovation more generally are really interesting to me as subjects. So, yeah. So what attracted you to design thinking uh, and innovation it sounds like it's not something that you kind of read about and thought that's interesting it's something you actually observed through yes. your work looking at how factories and furniture companies were uh, you know adapting and yeah. it wasn't really given that label at the time and but you just thought this is this is super interesting and and it kind of built from there yeah, that's right. So there were a couple of things that uh, really got me thinking. Um, so if you are an engineer, as I am, uh, for example, the way you think about problems and problem solving is often in some form of a funnel manner where you try to optimize something. So essentially, you try to solve it by making it quicker, cheaper, whatever that is, whatever you're looking at. Whereas in some of these companies, I could see that designers, but also other people, say in R&D or manufacturing, um, they, try, they, they went round and round in circles in trying to understand the problem in the first place. And uh, if you look at this from a very naive uh, engineering view, it's very wasteful because it takes longer. So instead of just getting going, so to speak, these people were thinking about it and rethinking about it and so on, which, you know, in academic jargon, you call this problem framing. You're trying to understand the problem in right. the first place instead of problem solving. Uh, but that got me thinking because I thought, how is it possible that these companies, who are quite, which were quite successful, 
uh, wasted so much time in, you know, in even addressing the simple problems. And then when you start to think about this a bit more, then you start to see that this is not necessarily wasteful. I mean, they're spending their time in a different way. It's not solving the problem to start with, but the fact that they mold over things and they try to understand, they conceptualize it and so on, uh, in, in many different ways. It can be about a different material that they need to use. It can be about a different customer needs. It can be about production methods, whatever that is. But, but the approach uh, was different. And that really got me thinking. And so some of the other projects that I've done have really tried to get a bit more into, you know, what is it that these companies that are successful and innovative, what is it that they do? Right. So I, I guess what you're describing there in, in very simple terms is the space in which exploration can happen. Uh, and, and, and sort of to the casual observer, it, it may seem like, hold on, they're just going round in circles here. Uh-huh. But, 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 but actually, it's part of an integral part of, in fact, the, the, the creative process, I guess, is what you're saying. That is right. Yes. And, uh, you know, and this is not just a very pure R&D perspective, as in you're trying to find a new chemical compound for a drug or you're trying to find a new way of uh, creating an inhaler, whatever that is. Um, It's it's a bit more than that, because sometimes you don't really know what you're looking for. So it's not that you're trying to do something. You don't need you don't really know what that something is. And at some point you start to kick around ideas and so on. And then eventually they converge onto something. But, but that kind of the so-called fuzzy front end, yeah. uh, it's something that is very difficult to pin down. And you certainly cannot treat it as a linear problem-solving affair. Uh, it's quite a different story. And, uh, and that's what really got me going. And, and also, I should say, the people that adopted that view were not necessarily only the ones in those kind of functions that are most involved. Again, R&D, maybe design, engineering. You could see that some people were sympathetic uh, about that approach. Maybe they were not doing themselves, but they understood why these people were doing uh, in finance, in sales, in marketing. You know, functions that would typically uh, be very far away, you know, conceptually from, from what these guys are doing. Yes, and that I guess we'll come on to in a bit, but that's one of the defining aspects of design thinking as opposed to design. It, yes. it, it's this distributed <clears throat> nature, the fact that it, these kind of uh, mindsets, approach, techniques are used beyond what could be described as the design team or, or, or R&D team and adopted by uh, you know people in other parts of the organization. So... If we sort of get into design thinking, I think everyone's familiar for what design thinking is. Certainly, I would imagine people who are, li- who are listening to this. And also, I think the debate about whether design is important to a company is kind of over, right? No CEO is going to stand up and say the design of our products or customer experiences is no longer important. So so do you think the the key difference then between design, the, the term design, and the term design thinking is this distributed effect. Do you think that's the, the sort of one of the key or yeah, the, yeah. the key so, thing about it? So yes. So one of the differences would be this, um, but you can also it depends. So maybe we'll come onto this at some point. But the way in which companies practice design thinking varies uh, quite a bit. There are some central tenets that people will be familiar with. So the fact of having a u- user slash human centered approach that people will understand it the fact of being iterative so going back and forth trying things out prototyping again these are kind of general traits that most people will be familiar with but but then there are in the specifics in some areas you would see some things being very developed in some companies and just not really done in others um so design what i'm trying to say is that design thinking is not a monolith there are certain things that you can see common across what companies do and other things that are not necessarily so um, but going back to the designs and thinking difference, uh, yes, part of that is the diffuse nature. Part of that is that design thinking, if you abstract it, and, and also it depends how you see it, but if you see design thinking as a process, as many companies do, more than as, say, a culture, I'll come on to that, but if you see it as a process, then you could almost speculate that if people are trained well enough, anybody could do it. And that is the main claim of Tim Brown, IDO, and many other people. You may agree or disagree with that. But, uh, but that's one of the claims. So you, in other words, you don't have to be a trained designer to do it. Maybe if you're a trained designer, some things will come a bit more naturally to you. 
because maybe you've been trained in the fact of mulling over things and trying things out without necessarily knowing what you're getting to, whereas a stereotypical lawyer or accountant would hate that, right? Uh, so that's possibly true. But, but at the same time, you can abstract it and say anybody could do it. Uh, equally, then you could say in some companies, the fact that they are design thinking organizations is because they've always had a strong design footprint, either because of the design team internally, uh, the apples of this world, that's the stereotype, or design uh, teams externally, like, I don't know, Herman Miller, the, the company that makes furniture, they right. rely oh, mainly on external designers, so, and, and many others. So, so that's the point, but it, it's about trying to understand how can you expand a certain perspective from a design team outside but also how much, and this is more of an open question than an answer, but how much can people that don't have a design training or some kind of R&D role, if you want, how is it that these people start to embrace some of the principles and practices that for other people may come and be more naturally? And that is where it's very difficult. And so if you look at this, for example, in practice, when one comp- an IT firm that I, well, a couple of IT firms that I've worked with, they have started to do very brief design thinking training programs. And you then wonder how much, how effective they are really. Because if you're trained in design thinking for two days, I mean, how, how much of a design thinker are you really going to be, right? It's quite questionable. You'll know, the, you'll know the process, but, you know, will you, will you, in a sense, feel it or be able to... That's right. Um, and as soon as you're under framework. pressure, are you really going to try and ring fence the time for problem framing that we talked about before? Probably not. If you're under pressure, just revert back to type and just try to get things done. Yeah. You know, for example, because I I wanted to start here just just because it's fascinating to me the degree to which definitions can get in the way of things. And, you know, design thinking is one of those subjects that's had lots of debate about it, including how it's defined and what is what it is. I think people understand Mm -hmm. what it is now, but there still seems sometimes often from designers in a way that it's it is it's not the same as you know, design, big D design, design thinking is different. But I think that for, for me, and also the point that you've, you've added, which I think is, 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 is super useful. It's this idea of the diffusion effect, but it's the ability for people who are not trained designers to use these uh, techniques in areas which you wouldn't necessarily associate with. And with uh, Just to add on that, then of course, again, from my experience, having worked and talked to many designers, yes, you can see that probably there are certain things that come a bit more natural to designers, but then it's not that all designers are the same. So it's not that all designers necessarily are design thinkers. I know a lot of designers that are very happy to work on very linear, simple projects uh, because they don't want to get into ambiguity. They don't like the complexity. They don't like the open-endedness. And so, hey, there would be designers that would not qualify, so to speak, as design thinkers. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. That's certainly true. So the, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, is sort of often observation I have that for me, design is on a very similar journey to agile, right? So if we think about agile, agile has leaked beyond the borders of software development and now is impacting, you know, organizations as a whole, as organizations try to become uh, agile and therefore there are knock-on effects such as what is agile leadership what is agile strategy what is agile governance what is agile um, budgeting so there's loads of knock-on effects as agile has moved through the organization and i wonder if it's the same for design so design in the form of design thinking has you know left the borders of the design team and is being adopted in different parts of the organization when it is you know, used successfully. Do you observe a, a similar pattern, and and do you see that there are barriers to adoption or knock-on effects as design leaves, you know, its heartland of the design team? Yeah, I think it's a good point. So I think that there are some similarities, perhaps also a difference, though. Um, in terms of similarities, that's right. Uh, so as you say, the Agile Manifesto of about twenty years ago was very much computer science. Uh, manifesto about how to do programming and so on. Then now we talk about agile and all sorts of things that have nothing to do with it. And and so yes, then you can think about some of the principles and practices that maybe for a design professional designer would be the norm. 
now they've kind of morphed into, so you're not perhaps prototyping an object, but you're trying to get feedback on a service. So it doesn't have to be a tangible object. Uh, you may redesign business functions. I mean, I've worked in projects where we've redesigned the HR function, human resources. We've just changed the way it was. It was a redesign of a function, not a project in the sense of creating an object or something. Um, the one thing that I would say, though, is that if you look at design thinking in a broad sense, for me, and that's where the definitions come in, uh, come in um, the way I see it, there are some bits of design thinking that are so difficult for people in business to grasp, not conceptually, conceptually they understand it, but practically, that sometimes they get left out. Whereas with Agile, at least, I think that the core of it is well understood. And yes, it doesn't mean that everybody practices in the same way. But, you know, the idea of iterating, the idea of sprinting, the idea of condensing time to get people to work on something, the idea of not to work in a waterfall way, so those kind of agile principles, I think that most people grasp. But, for example, the idea of problem framing, the idea of asking what if kind of speculative questions that is really at the heart of design thinking. When you start to look at some of these things in a business context, sometimes, you know, people just don't practice them. Um, yeah, again, not because they don't understand to. them, but they don't do that. Whereas maybe with Agile, it's, it, it, maybe Agile is slightly easier to digest for a, a kind of typical organization, whereas some of the design thinking principles may be less so. I'm also wondering that, you know, if we think about this expression, software is eating the world. Mm. And because of the dominance that technology plays now in contemporary business, not not only just from the technology uh, and the hardware and data, but 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 also culturally in terms of how things get done. I wonder uh, as we think about this diffusion effect of agile uh, compared to design, but because technology, digital transformation, all of those things are, are, go to the core of the business. Maybe there is a stronger imperative for uh, adopting them, even even though people will recognize the importance of design, especially when design is a proxy for saying, how does something work? What, do our customers want this? What is the experience? You know, when, I, when we use the term design, that's what we mean under the hood. If we, we, you know, that's what we're getting to. But, uh, but I imagine, I don't know whether you, you, you observe the same thing, that just, just because there's IT, for want of a better word, is just so fundamental to contemporary business, uh, but also culturally now that, that there's a bigger impetus behind it. Yes, yes, that's right. It could be. And, and perhaps, you know, when it comes to some of the agile principles, the way they've been packaged and disseminated and then applied, maybe it's a bit more coherent. Whereas if you think about design thinking, yes, people will be familiar with the notion, but it may be that you will get different answers from people of what, what it is. And actually, when you go to see what people do, there are quite fundamental differences. Whereas if you start to think that if a company says that they've done agile in, in I don't know, project management or whatever they do, it, it would tend to resemble across companies. Whereas when you look at this and thinking, then it's a bit more open-ended, which in a way is true to its nature. Because if you were yes. super prescriptive, then what the hell? Yeah, you're, <laughs> it's you're, a project. you're sucking it's, the life out of it. Exactly. So the more you codify it, the, the drier it gets. So you can't right. really do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that brings us nicely on to this, this idea of the, the, the work that you've been done, or to, not the idea of, but the, the actual research you've done. You've done um, a few large research projects uh, around this. And I wonder if you could talk us a little bit through your findings, because you, you did a research project, I think, in 2019, looking at 30 different companies. You spoke to over you know, 100 people. And this research showed that there was big variations in what people uh, think about design thinking, how they interpret it, how they use it. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about what, what you found? Yeah, that's right. So what we found was both looking at company practices and also reading on design thinking. So we, we surveyed pretty much everything that had been written up to that point, uh, academic and non-academic literature. You can see that there are certain things that are kind of common and, and which is good. And as I said before, you know, the idea of being human centered, the idea of iterating, the idea of being collaborative, you know, some of those principles are kind of there and nobody will really dispute them, at least not to a large extent. But then when you go and see some of the other nuanced stuff, 
um, that's where you start to have variation. And, uh, you know, in a good or bad way, it depends. So if you wanted to have a kind of consolidated approach that everybody could apply, you would be disappointed because that's not what people do or not what people say. Right. If instead you like variety, then here you go. I mean, you would have it. And so, you know, especially the, the, the more explorative phase that we talked about before, that's the one that in some cases is still present. In other cases, it's just absent. So people just get going with the doing of it. So the ideation, you know, and using things that people know more or less about, you know, from good old brainstorming, but then to, you know, journey mapping or blueprints. And stuff like that. Yeah. But, but, but the, the first bit, which is really kind of, dig a bit deeper and really try to understand what is the root cause of a problem or what is the real opportunity that you may have. That's where there is quite a bit of difference. And then, you know, the, the, the obvious difference is also when you think about this idea of focusing on users, how do you do that? I mean, marketing departments have been doing this for ages, but not necessarily in the same way as what design thinking say, which is you don't necessarily survey people. You don't necessarily go and talk to them. You don't necessarily do focus groups or what have you. You try to understand what people might need because you observe. You try to, to put yourself in their shoes. It's this kind of empathy-led yeah. process, mm. which is quite different. And so, again, the way in which companies digest that, is sometimes they just revert into what they knew, which is, yes, okay, you can do some observation of these 10 individuals, but we really want to see the data from the marketing departments, which has got data about 10,000 individuals and their partner of consumption or whatever they do, that's what we're going to rely on. Then off you go with your ethnographies and things, but the, the real data is somewhere else. I guess that's the tension between, you know, patterns that you can observe in large data sets versus truths and insights that you yeah. get from a smaller sample group, but through observation. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, these, even from a methodological point of view, these are just different ways, you know, they, they give you different answers to, right. to, to what you're looking for. So if you really want to understand, you know, what are the habits of a certain group in the population? Well, yes, maybe overall, you can have a picture of that with some kind of a distribution. If you really want to try and understand what people don't tell you because they don't know it or because they can't tell you because they rationalize and therefore they will tell you something else then you need to go and see it. So, you know, for example, you could see, okay, so how much is, I don't know, internet banking diffused in the over 75? You could do a survey. Then it depends what people will tell you. Then you could decide that you sample 20 people over 75. You go to their homes and you see what they do. It's a different type of evidence, a different type of insight. Now, it's up to you to decide whether being with Mrs. Smith for an hour is a waste of time or instead, it's a great revelation because you actually see what Mrs. Smith does when she's 85. She can't see very well, and therefore, she never uses internet banking, even though in a survey, she will feel embarrassed not to say so. You know? yeah. So it's a, different, it's a different approach. So did you, did you find any you know, statistical or um, you know, measures from, from your research? I, I, I understand a lot of it was obviously through user interviews and, as you said, surveying existing ac academic work and books on design thinking, which led you to identify certain articles uh, and, 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 and patterns which led you to firm up the kind of definition of design thinking and, the, and its key attributes. But when it comes to the adoption and how it's utilised, were there any uh, patterns that came came out of it? So one study that we did that is quantitative and it's a large sample, it's more on, on design. So going back to what you were saying is the, is the design versus design thinking. So it's not that they're entirely different, but they're not the same either. So no. you know, when you look at design itself, the effect that it has, and it's, it's obviously much stronger, for example, when the design function is more involved in different phases of service development or product development. And now we have quantitative evidence for it. So we've done three-step survey over the years, and we have that, at least in certain contexts. So we know that if certain approaches used by designers in, again, problem solving, problem framing, and so on, are used throughout a, a development process, that tends to be more effective if, rather than when they're used in just one bit of the product development process, which tends to be at the beginning. So that so we like, have... Uh, as opposed to interventions. So instead of an interventions, interventions or really just at the fuzzy right. front end, so to speak. So right. 
you iterate a bit at the beginning, but then the rest of everything else is linear. So that works less well than when you have this attitude throughout. In terms of design thinking itself, um, there's less on that quantitative, either for me or for somebody else, because people have not really studied that way. So we tend to still, and it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a gap, put it that way. Uh, we tend to still get into companies to understand what they do, rather than say, let's survey a large group of firms. That's, that's the next step, um, but uh, we haven't done it yet. So it, what, that would be more about how effective it is. Some specific practices or some specific tools or processes, there, are, uh, there is evidence on that, but the overall design thinking approach, not enough. No, no, yeah, that's that. That's a growth area, I guess, for 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 your your research and other researchers um, uh, around the world. Uh, this is not. I think this is just a, a where the subject matter is. Uh, you know, at the moment, it, it it's just. I think that it, maybe it's the scientist in me or something, just sort of saying, where is the thing which says, yeah, thirty five percent of companies that do, 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 are more successful or. 55% of companies use design thinking in the da, 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 da. So it's interesting to, 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 to don't have that. It's, and, and that's insightful in, 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 in itself. I'm, there's part of me, which is quite surprised by that in a way, but um, I also think it's, it's interesting that in a way it's a function of what design thinking is. It's, it, 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 it you know, uh, beyond the sort of nature of its definition, what it is, in the actual practical application, the fact that it's so variable, which is what what is so good about it, because people can do it in relevant ways. There isn't a one size fits you know fits all. Means it's very hard to measure. Um, you know, so that 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 it is what it is. I guess. Yeah. Do you from you know what you observe and the research you've done? Do you think that companies are using it as a strategic tool or? Do companies you see it as a bit of a fad to try it and then stop? Um, do, do, you, do you find that companies who who do try it and, and, and adopt it then uh, keep using it? Yeah, does it, it, does it, it tend to burn out? Um, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. That's right. I mean, now that as you said before, so you know, design thinking as an expression, as an approach, started to become more popular about 10, 12 years ago. You know, and then yeah, I would say so. We've got say a 10 year experience. So there will, there will be companies that have had a goal, so to speak, and then now they start to see whether this, it's worth for them or not. Uh, there are lots of other companies instead that are experimenting with it. They're still interested, but they haven't done much yet. Um, I should say probably then in the US, there is more awareness, not that they do it necessarily better, but there's more awareness of it than there is in the UK in certain um, but anyway, so it's a tricky one. So in some cases, it is strategic in the sense that people have in invested money and time. Uh, they've trained people. They've changed some of their processes. Uh, they've really started to look at things in a different way, uh, the type of meetings that they run. So a lot of things, lots of, you know, even down to the operational detail, certain things have changed. And That's so, yes, there are companies that have done that. And instead, there are some other companies that have done design thinking because they've recruited some designers or they've, you know, they've changed a couple of things here and there, but it's not really an over, a comprehensive approach. So that's quite different. It's much more opportunistic. It's much more tactical. And maybe there is a great success story of one example of a product or service that came out, but it doesn't necessarily permeate. So the rest of the company works pretty much the same way as before. But in that specific project, they adopted a different perspective. And so, you know, there is a typical case that we teach in business school about the Nespresso machine. Now, yeah. uh, I've done a small project with Nestle years ago, but uh, it was not about this. But Nestle is not a very innovative company in the sense that we say radical innovation. It's very incremental. There's many companies in that kind of sector. But the Nespresso machine is very innovative. But it doesn't mean that the process that was followed with Nespresso now is used for everything Nestle. Not at all. And so, was it a design thinking uh, process? You would see for... today more or less that way. I mean, it's again, it's well before the codification of design thinking, but it was very much about reconceiving something, asking lots of what-if questions, collaborating with people outside. So in a way, there are lots of design thinking traits, yeah. but it doesn't. I wouldn't qualify design thinking as the approach that permeates Nestle. 
as far as I know it. Right. Yeah. And who, in your experience, tends to be spearheading and championing um, design thinking within an organization? Is it is it someone in the design team who's trying to, you know, get what they do to have greater impact across the organization by getting people to buy into these various techniques, be they prototyping or, you know, speaking to your customers before you do something? Or does it tend to be people outside the design team who you know, see, see the promise and un- un- understand the, the application. Do you, have you observed anything? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, yeah, I would say so. If, if there is a sufficiently big design department, which happens in some companies, but not necessarily know, uh, then probably yes. Uh, whether they're successful or not is a different story, but that's probably where the impetus comes from. In other cases, you would have maybe, yes, you know, somebody that works in, God knows, marketing, engineering, whatever else, that goes on to a course and then, uh, you know, they've got this epiphany and say, hey, I want to try it out. And so they do. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily come through design. Then in the design department, there will be quite a lot of support, but it doesn't come necessarily from them. The key point is that you need to make it, as we said before, a diffused approach. Otherwise, it doesn't fly. Otherwise, again, it may be confined to a project. It may be confined to a certain area. You know, there are lots of examples on, uh, I don't know, a typical one would be medical companies like I don't know, General Electric when they did a lot of work with medical in MRI scanners and so on. That's another case that you would get taught in, in a typical business school environment. Is GE a design thinking company? Well, how can you say? You know, it's over 200,000 employees. You can't say that everybody does design thinking. But yes, there are lots of projects that show it and lots of projects that don't. And so it also depends on what kind of reality we're talking about. If the, the company you've got in front of you is very large, then before it becomes a design thinking firm, it may take years and years. But, you know, but maybe there is a division that is particularly sensitive to it. And through some individuals, then it breaks through and then it becomes the way of doing it, at least in that division, say GE Healthcare. But then GE gas turbines, probably not. Right. So right. that's the way. It works. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that, that makes sense. So. The other thing that I think is important to design thinking is 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 the underpinning logic which make, makes it work, which uh, you know Roger Martin talks about as uh, abductive reasoning. You've written about this and have sort of described three types of of logic which run and are pervasive within within business and and one of them being the logic of imagination which i which i i love i love that term and it will probably surprise and confuse and uh, appall people in, e- in equal measure as a sort of contradiction there isn't there um do you want to talk a little bit about these different types of logic and how they're different and and how design thinking or the logic of design thinking uh, what that is and how that fits into this uh, this context and i guess especially at the moment because obviously companies are thinking so heavily about you know where they go uh, at the moment and, and and how do they adapt so i guess this your logic and your worldview really does determine the basis on which you make decisions and That's i think this is, this is what this is why uh, i wanted to talk about this today yeah yeah certainly so yeah um so for me as you say you could distinguish three different logics um, and, you know, they run in parallel. Sometimes they come together, sometimes they clash. But, you know, the typical one, in, in formal terms, it will be called deductive logic, which means you test an hypothesis. You think that customers will buy this product because it's got this feature. Or you think that people are going to come and buy your services as an insurance company because you offer this and that and so on you try it out. You, you go to market, you try and see what works, you may make some tweaks and so on. But it's this constant testing and checking. But your idea is what goes to the customer mainly. It may come with customer insight before from a marketing study, whatever. But, but essentially, you're trying to, to get something to the customer. And that's what we tend to do most of the times. Um, the other two that I talk about that are competing logic against this one or complementing happens. One would be the logic of induction, which is instead you look at data without too much in the way of preconceptions or patterns you've got in your mind. And by mining the data, the typical work of business analytics and so on, you try to identify themes, you try to identify patterns. 
It's not easy because in certain cases, you've got too much data. In some cases, you've got poor quality data. But if the data are sufficient in quality and quantity, then they can give you really a good understanding of what goes on. You know, I know car companies uh, around the corner from here that have changed a lot in the way in which they, uh, for example, manage their dealers, uh, the, the way in which they do product recalls, the way in which they stock their warehouses, because they found some patterns in, in data that they had. So all data that you get from somewhere else. Now, the point about the third one that, as you said, formally is called abductive reasoning or abduction, uh, is the fact that it's not based on data that you extrapolate to find something. It's not based on your preconception that you push in, but it's based on imagination, as you say, in the sense of you want to create, it's an intentional process. So you want to create a certain future. And so let's say, I don't know, five years time, five years time, you want to see that. And the logic is to try to understand where you are today in comparison to that five-year scenario, pull them back to today and try to understand what is the best path to get there. It's a bit convoluted, but it's essentially a backwards and forwards where the logic is your way to identify the future state and try to identify which ways on which processes, which actions will get you there. And that's where you apply this logic. Now, this logic can take you in new places because it's not rooted in the past. The, the analytics logic has to be rooted in the past. You just yeah, need to it's have data. historical, yeah. yeah. So you, otherwise, what kind of, you cannot imagine the data, right? And similarly, the deductive logic tends to be based in past experience or past data, whereas the logic of imagination is, is a forward-looking one. You, you try to look at ahead. And again, you cannot have the data about the future, right? So what you do is that you try to push yourself in a way that says, right, so if I believe that in five years' time, the way in which, I don't know, we're going to do personal fitness, now to news of today of reopening gyms, is it going to be a blend of digital and presence? Is it going to be all online? Is it going to be through subscription models? Whatever you like. But you're going to think about the ways in which the future of personal fitness, well-being, what have you, is going to be. And it doesn't necessarily depend on the past. And as you say, we may expand on that more generally about COVID-19, but, but the point is that when there are moments of change like today, if you are rooted in the past, either because of preconception or because of data, if you are getting into a new situation, the new normal that people say, you can't really rely on that, at least not entirely, because it's not going to tell you the truth, right? You're entering a new space. You can't rely on the past only because otherwise you're just aiming from the wrong, to the wrong target, right? And so it's necessary, at least to some extent, the one tries to project in the future and pulls back rather than look in the past and then try to project in the future. Yes. So th this idea of uh, imagination and asking what if I, I, is this different space, I think, that uh, not just design thinking, but creative any creative exploration uh and yeah uh, and approaches that take you into different spaces which which is is why it's so hard in a business context in a lot of times where you know data decision making governance are based on you know facts or things which have already happened and therefore you know uh magnetize you to a certain a certain path if you want to break that or disrupt that then you haven't got that data or, 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 or evidence um, to work with. That's why it's so fundamentally different. And, and you sort of describe the companies that, that do this well uh, do a couple of things. They're, they're, they don't just use one of these logics, and, and it's their ability to switch between these different logics. Is it, it, yeah, which is, is not right? easy because if you really stretch this, then you can see that that demands different ways of doing lots of things. So for example, imagine a simple meeting where you're deciding whether to go ahead with a new service or not. You know, the typical deductive would be, okay, so let's look a bit of past experience. Do we believe in this? Do we have enough confidence? Yeah, let's go. For it. That's the meeting discussion. In the case of a very inductive logic, you're just trying to get data as much as possible and you will have an analyst that tells you that there is a chance of 50% to do this, 30% to do that, 20% to do that, then you go from 50%. What and the more imagination-based, 
would be more around, okay, so let's try to imagine a future state. Okay, so what does that service entail from the point of view of the user? And you try to put yourself into the user, you develop a persona of the user. It's an entirely different thing. So it's not easy to switch. There are companies that are very much in tune with each one of them. And so a startup would be much more in tune with this imagination logic because they don't have the baggage and the history and so on. Whereas an established company that's been around for 200 years, then of course they're, they're going to struggle with this idea of imagination and, and even the understanding patterns because they've been doing the same thing forever. So it, it's not simple, but there are people that can try and do this. For example, where there are projects that are different, there may be projects that are very linear and simple and kind of keep going. And there are other ones that instead by nature are seen as being very different and very innovative. And so maybe you have a way to introduce a different logic. So, you know, then in that case, it becomes a bit easier to do this at the same time because you've got different projects. So it's, a, it's an advantage to be able to utilize all of these different types of logic uh, and, uh, and thinking and to know when to deploy them and how to switch to them. But, but I think uh, that's right. Easier and, and said than done. Absolutely, absolutely. I would say that is many things. The first thing is to be aware. So if the way in which you run your meetings, for example, is always of one kind, it would be very difficult to get any of the other two in. Yeah. Because you, you don't leave the space for it. Yeah. It's uh, having that different diversity, I guess, of thought and, and, and logic. Now, the other thing I, I was uh, surprised about um, looking into the work that you've done, <clears throat> and it, it's, it's definitely something that I... I've sort of come across regularly and have experienced it, you know, in my career. And I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this who be familiar with this, with this area is this idea of, of tension between a brand being consistent and a brand being vital or having some kind of vitality to it. In other words, not being so, you know, um, still that it appears to be uh, dead. So how, how do you how do you keep a brand alive and moving forward so it retains its relevance? Uh, so there's this tension between consistency and vitality, or consistency and and relevance. So you've done some research on this in the way that actually design thinking can apply here, and I think this is really important for people working in design because this idea of product personality and also the role of the experience or the actual usage of your product and experience actually being the brand reality in a, in a, in a sense. So the, the marketing and the advertising sets up a promise and, you know, contemporary storytelling and, in, and engagement on social media, Instagram, whatever it is, is a key part of that piece now when we think about brand and brand personality and how you engage with your audience. But when people are buying your products, be it a physical product, digital product, or they walk into your shop or, you know, they use, use your service, that's where the brand comes alive in those interactions. So people working in the experience side and the design side want to express the brand in those moments. But often, whether it's, you know, this is where the phrase brand police uh, you know, comes up and you have all the, these tensions between this idea of being consistent, but then having something which is moving on and evolving. So you, you've looked at this and actually found design thinking can, can, can help here through. Yeah, that's right. Through, yes. Through so through as you say, yeah. um, in this context of branding, when you look at consistency and vitality, if you take the extremes, they're not necessarily viable. Because if you're entirely consistent, you just keep plowing on the same direction. At some point, you will become stale, outdated, old in the negative sense. And if you keep going for vitality only, you will not have a brand because you will just look differently. And so you don't have those kind of elements that make it recognizable. So what we we're trying to do was to say, right, of course, you may have a portfolio of products, services, and so on, so you can distribute it, right? You can have something that looks the same, something that's relatively new. But one thing that we also found was, well, what can we do to try and get a sufficiently high level of consistency so you know that this is the brand, but at the same time, the brand is vital, so it's, it still have that freshness, right? And so, yes, so we identified a number of practices. We looked at 20 companies, but uh, it was really trying to identify which 
in which instances they manage to marry the two, and some of the design thinking aspects become, uh, became very handy. So for example, the fact of trying to push yourself with what if questions and even just simple questions about, okay, so there was one about this furniture company and um, they were making bed frames, for example, and, uh, and people kept coming to them and say, oh, we like your, your furniture because it's very traditional. And then you stop and say, but what does tradition mean? I mean, what tradition are you talking about? Because it depends. Is it tradition in the sense of 200 years ago or 20 years ago? And if you start to interrogate that, then you start to get sort of this kind of naive questioning. You start to get something out of it and say, okay, maybe traditional is actually an archetypal tradition, but those, that never existed. You believe that that's traditional, but, but this is relatively new. You just imagine that 50 years ago, bed frames were that way, but they were not, right? And so now, okay, now we've got how our hands are a bit more free because it's not that we need to produce stuff that looks 50 or 100 years old, but we can try and create tradition in a modern sense. So yes, we will not go off entirely and make a bed frame uh, in uh, stainless steel, but maybe what we can do is to make it look a bit more modern while at the same time retaining some elements. And the same can be done for you know, services or bundles of the two in a way that you know, keeps asking this question, what if we could do something different, while at the same time understanding users very well. And that's the other bit of Zen Thinking by Sandy. Really try to understand user preferences because if these preferences change, you cannot just keep providing the same product or the same service. At the same time, you want to keep something. So for example, if you're an insurance company, you can provide something new, but at the same time, making people feel safe or in safe hands, you know, so that kind of reassurance element, that kind of risk mitigation element needs to be there. But at the same time, you don't necessarily have to promote the same services that you've done for 20 years. You may do it differently. Um, again, you will know the, the, the world of banking very well. You know, again, you can reimagine retail banking. So you still provide certain services, but you do it in a different way. You don't have to go to a bank branch. So the service interaction is different, but you still have the same approach in a sense for the basics, but you extend that. And so it is fresh, but at the same time, again, making you feel that you're still in you know, safe hands and so on. And that's where we, we, we found this. Our study was mainly on products, but you can imagine that this applies to anything. And, uh, and some of those things really managed when people did them properly, they managed to strike that bit in the middle, so to speak, where they caught the good side of consistency because there is this kind of reassurance, knowing what you're doing, that kind of brand presence, but at the same time doing something that is sufficiently new that people enjoy, you know, and doesn't have to be necessarily youngsters. It can be anyone because maybe you're tired with that offering, tired to go to that kind of restaurant, tired of buying that bed frame and so on. And are you saying that the, the, the behaviors which make that happen or the role of design thinking within that context is one, asking these what if questions and secondly, really understanding user needs, user preferences and, and how they're evolving? Is that Those is, two were definitely very strong. Yes. And then, of course, the other bit is the iteration bit, right? So it was very much about if you try things out, you can refine your ideas. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be that you dumb it down because you need to get everybody to like it because if you do that, then it becomes designed by committee. But if you start to get a bit of this iterative stuff, you try things out, you iterate, you involve different people, which is typical design thinking, then you progress. You may have an insight about what does make this product new while at the same time recognizable. You keep pushing it, pushing it without necessarily taking the stance that no, as you said, the brand policing would say, our product needs to look that way. Our service needs to be delivered that way because that's the way we are. That's too strong. And yes. so keeping getting that feedback can get you out of the cage of branding when it's exercised that way and maybe set you a bit more free because you've got, you start to also get a bit more of that evidence to say we can get out of this kind of branding perimeter and do something that's a bit different. Right, yeah. That makes sense. So it's design thinking applied to brand management. Yes, uh, yes, yes. So, so how do you see design thinking evolving? I mean, where, where do you think it, it's going next? I mean, in the earlier part of our discussion, we sort of touched upon how there's still some gaps in, in terms of the study of it and, and really understanding the, it's, it, you know, in, 
impact and, and and more statistics on it i guess because of the huge variation in how it's applied that you've described make, makes that hard where, where where do you see design thinking uh, evolving you know from here yeah yeah that's right so as you said the, the research on it is exactly what you said the, the 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 practice of it well you know it's not that design thinking is the only approach that kind of champions the, the humanity side of it the human side of it but it's certainly one that does more than others and so yes maybe that's one of the things which is and again it doesn't have to be in opposition with other things but it complements so you know I've been, as you said, I've been working on this project around digital transformation, digital innovation, all sorts of applications of the usual suspects, AI, machine learning, and so on and so forth. And as much as some of that makes a lot of sense in certain environments, you know, the kind of human side of it, uh, it would be great to think that it's still there. Otherwise, you lose it. You know, otherwise, who's going to do that? And, uh, and that applies in everything. It can be the appreciation of some things. Uh, the, the insights into, for example, behaviors, not just very simple patterns of consumption. Um, the point of trying to understand what people don't tell you, but they show it to you, you know, those things you can't really do in other ways, you know. Uh, and that's why you need an approach that sometimes goes really deep. Maybe, again, with a small N sample, as we said. So a few people, a few cases, but you really go deep. And, uh, you, you know, that complements the, the, the vast amounts of data that you can get somewhere else, the fact that you can uh, then find some kind of statistical patterns in other ways. But, but I hope the design thinking still stands in that kind of area to say, right, so maybe, again, going back to the point about COVID, some of the new needs of people will come out. And so uh, just if I reflect on a couple of things that are personal, so yes, it may well be that I'll keep working from home, right? As many people do. And, and you know, to some people it's a great liberation because they had long commutes. That is not right. my case, by the way, but I can understand it, right? If it yes. takes one and a half hours to go into work, then the fact of working from home more often is better for you. But it might be that, uh, you know, your office at home is not necessarily an office because you don't have much space. Maybe you've got other people in the house. And so that creates a new need, which is people working from home will start to have new needs. They are not in offices. And so anyone that provides furniture, that provides ergonomic solutions to people can rethink it, right? And, and, and But yeah. that is something that a design thinking approach can get you to think, okay, let's go and see the life of these guys with three small children, or let's go and see the life of these guys that live in a, in a one-bedroom, small apartment in central London, whatever, right? And that you cannot find through a big survey or an existing Yes. I think that that it's the jumping off point that you describe because when I look at you know contemporary business and a lot of the themes driving contemporary business whether it's lean you know lean startup whether it's you know agile devops a lot of them share uh, and design thinking it, they share a lot of common things as you said before you know this idea of iteration prototyping experimentation whether you get that evidence is data or through you know observation and uh, and so on so there are, there there is a lot of co- complementary approaches between you know lean design uh, you know and agile which is which is very positive but li- listening to you speak there i think the the bit that that design thinking really offers is is trying to ensure there's that space particularly at the front end for that um deep understanding of the, the opportunity based on human emotion and, and, and needs and that space for creative um, exploration. And, and, and for me, I just think I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. There's a, there's a few things out there, though, although there are things in favour, in, in design thinking's favour in terms of it continuing to play a role or its role in, in increasing. But there's also a few challenges i think one is this idea of design being a victim of its own success and it's this idea of what i call the industrialization of design so as design has become an integral part of you know business especially digital business we've seen you know ux ui teams become a key part of of business but because they've got sucked into the iterative nature of digital 
it's almost a sense they've become like a production shop and where design used to have this cliche associated with oh it's just what things look like it's where the posters are made those kind of cliches we've now replaced that cliche with another cliche which is design is really about where the buttons go and and ux and now we have big teams you know churning out wireframes and and and, and digital prototypes when in fact design is much bigger than that that's the, the the first thing the second we've already been talking about it's this idea of data and the role that it plays in company decision making and again it's such a pervasive force now analytics is so dominant data tends to drive you down a particular tunnel especially optimization uh, tunnels so and it doesn't leave space for asking what if type questions and then finally this is the idea of of pace and acceleration and the need to get things done quicker and everyone wants to be faster and more nimble and so all of these things run counter to the oxygen that design thinking and design in a sense you know needs so it's it's not perceived in the right way being my first point second point being data kind of suffocating the, the you know the space for other types of of, of logic and, and and thirdly the role of speed in contemporary business and that eroding any kind of creative runway that you have i i, yeah. I, I don't know if any of that echoes with with you oh yeah yeah all of them now that's brilliant yes I, I don't know if i've got solutions but i certainly recognize the challenges so the point about perceptions you write um one of the key points will be there to a again differentiate a bit between just having lots of UX people and actually doing design thinking. That's not the same, right? So again, there will be plenty of companies that employ lots of designers of different kinds, but they don't necessarily do design thinking and vice versa. There will be companies that don't necessarily employ them many designers, but they do it. So the perception needs to be about what design thinking is and trying to keep firm certain principles. So as I said, if everything that is done, design or design thinking related, is very operational, very tactical. It's not the same as something that is much more strategic, much more cultural, much more diffused. These exactly. two are very different things. And so one would need to push back and say, hey, if company X just has a great interface on the web, but then everything else is the same as it used to be 10, 20 years ago, then it's not design thinking, right? So it, it, we need to call things for what they are. Otherwise, it just becomes everybody dilutes things. The point about data, you're right. I think that the push there will be to say, hey, everybody's got to bring data, but there are different types. And so, uh, you know, the data that we're most familiar with, that people talk a lot about, is the fact that you have big data in the sense that you as a company generate a lot of data, and then you've got customer data, social media data, anything around you depends on what you do but you know so these data have got their own issue because very often they may not be of the quality you need to clean data sets and so on so that requires a lot of time anyway but they don't give you the depth that other things can give you and so you know if you want to get depth you cannot just do it because you buy a survey result of uh, 10 million people in the world when actually that you find averages and, and these averages, there is no person like that, you know, um, right. It, yeah. You know, it's so if I insight. eat two chickens and you eat zero, the average is one, but you haven't eaten anything. That, that's an Italian say. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. so there you go. So the, the average sometimes doesn't tell you very much. Yeah. Um, and so there are different types of data and design thinking has got to bring its own, which is not the same as the, the large data sets. The point about speed is very, is very true, uh, absolutely. That's certainly something that people are familiar with and want to increase in everything. Of course, now pharmaceutical firms, for example. Hopefully. Um, at the same time, you need to think that not everything can be done at the same speed. So maybe one way for design thinking to still thrive is for companies to be very intentional about differentiating between different types of projects or services or whatever yes. you do. And in that case, say, look, we need to find a quick fix for this one and we want to go to market within two months. Okay, so the what if, the, that, that doesn't really apply to us. We'll just keep the same assumptions. We'll just make a small tweak to this and off we go. Yes. But you cannot just survive on that because that, that becomes firefighting. So 
at that point you say, okay, but we need to leave the space for won't be the majority, but for some project or some products or services to go onto a different channel. And that channel will be the one where we've got a bit more time, we can experiment and so on. And it depends what you do. You know, if you make sneakers, yes, I mean, you can compete, but after a while, if you can make all use the same sneakers, you're not going to get anywhere because your margins are very And so you will need to try and do something, which is where, you know, the Nikes of this world are doing very well because they can do both. Some other companies that have only done the same things over and over again, of course, they're struggling. It depends on, on the sector, but you can see how the kind of intentional idea of differentiating between different times to market, different speed, uh, is probably one way forward. And design thinking, of course, as God, as you say, it's time because you need to step back a bit. If you don't step back a bit, then you can't you're not really doing it. Yeah, that's super interesting. This idea of, and I think this is one of the, the challenges of contemporary management is the idea of different cadences uh, and timescales and different risk levels all happening and living simultaneously within an organization. And sort of, as you say, having that intentionality around here's some things which we need to move quickly on and, you know, are incremental or just part of making our business as usual better. But then when we think about, you know, our future and moving into new territories or whatever we see those opportunities are or asking these what if type questions, then the cadence around that, the speculative nature of that requires you know, a different set of skills, a different, you know, set of success criteria uh, and space to be successful. And I think if you, you know, companies need to allow all these things to coexist in a way that's relevant to them, but not be one dimensional about, you know, what they're doing, because otherwise you're not placing any bets on the future and you run the risk of, you know, uh, getting dismediated. And we're asking everyone this question who comes onto the show at the moment what's what's your take on what the impact of the global pandemic is going to be we're obviously quite a way into it now and earlier on there was a lot written about things will never be the same again we've had this phrase new normal uh, etc what's your observation do you do you think we are entering a new normal or do you think things will go back to the way they were or somewhere in between or what's, what's what's your take on its on its legacy and impact yeah, so, so I'll comment from what I do for a living, which is organizational management, not more. One could think about society. But that's not sure. my thing. I can give you common sense responses to that. But now, from the point of view of what I do, I would say, well, the, the obvious point is people will keep thinking very carefully about where do people work, how people work together, uh, what does it mean to be in a team, how do we manage to get people together, and, and how... We do things that sometimes we thought that necessarily entailed being the same space. And instead, now we don't. I work in higher education. So for us, now the new normal is that it will be, yes, for the next months, God knows how long, but uh, we will have mixed deliveries. So it means that uh, you do a lesson. Maybe there are people in the room. There will be lots of people that connect in. Do you blend two? Do you do them separately? How do you interface with different groups? So that is a new normal. And in the world of higher education, just to use one example, it is different now. Uh, many people will not go into the office, so it will be normal to Skype them in or Teams or Zoom, what have you. And, Do you think that's um, going to stick? Do you think that's going to stick, so. Pietro? you think that's yeah, going to be I think so, a because, lot something? Yeah, because to me, I, I prefer, to be honest, the way I am, uh, to have more of the kind of personal contact. But at the same time, you can imagine that in the past, I used to think that when we delivered some programs or when we had some meetings, sometimes people would have to travel really from far for something that may last a couple of hours. And you think, is this really the best use of your time? Is that not really expensive to do all this traveling besides the sustainability aspects of that? So I think that in the future, people will think more carefully about that. So just the basic pattern of where we work and how we work together, I think that, that will change. Yes, maybe not, not hugely, but it will change. Um, and there's a lot of companies that have changed already. You know, they've uh, stopped agreements with uh, providers of office space because they don't need them anymore. They will do more office yeah. space. So, so that it's one. No, and then in general, you know, I think that we as users of products and services may change our own pattern. 
things. And so once again, it, does, it can be because you work from home. It can be that also you work and, and interface with other people differently. New needs will come up. And so for organizations, private and public, they will interface and will need to try to, to capture those needs and service those needs, if you want, address those needs uh, in ways that they've not done before. So we will hopefully, the providers uh, of whatever, whether it's, uh, you know, the local primary school or the local GP surgery or, you know, anyone that creates products for the house or what have you, they will need to get into that too. And so things will change. Yes, I think so. We're not, I would not expect things to be exactly the same as they used to be in, say, December 2019, be the same into December 2020. Not even December 2021 and the future. There will be a discontinuity. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Pietro. Thanks for making the, t- the time to come and share your insights around design thinking and other things as, uh, as well. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I appreciate it. So thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. You can subscribe to hear about new episodes wherever you listen to your podcast. Please give us a rating and review if you've enjoyed listening. You can get in touch with your comments and suggestions via our email, contact at doorglobal.com. You can also sign up to our email list to hear about articles and events over at doorglobal.com. My thanks again to Pietro Michelli of Warwick Business School and to you for listening. Until next time, keep well.